Welcome to the Midweek Everyone Gets a Trophy podcast. It is going to be the Baylor Breakdown, and we're going to talk some trash about other Big 12 programs and maybe even be informative as well. Uh, and I could actually re rename this the Boyd Baylor Breakdown, because back by popular demand, it's Ian Boyd, the master of the whiteboard, number one in your hearts. Ian, what's going on, man? Uh, not much. <laughs> All right. Ian, always excited to be on the podcast, as you can tell. <laughs> He's electric, folks. That's why you demand him. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's radiating it. He's radiating energy. It's pulsating through the through the airwaves. Uh, I was going to mention uh, that I was a little late on the Zoom call because I was commanding uh, an assault on a Terran position. Ah, got it. You were playing video like, games, or you were playing like, with your son? No, uh, well. I've, I've hemmed and hawed too much now. No, I was just playing uh, old school Starcraft on my computer. Oh. All right. Have, have like, you well, tried? That. That's too nerdy. I won't, I won't say that. I'll have you tried it. Civilization yet? Um, not really. I sort All of loaded right. it on the computer for a minute and then uh, I got busy. All right. Old school Civilization 2. It's awesome. You'll love it. Your efficiency is going to plummet, though, for a while. And so you may not love that aspect. Yeah. Well, I need but, to finish this other game. But uh, maybe then. Speaking, speaking of plummeting efficiencies, the Baylor Bears are one and two this year, Ian. Yeah. You know how many games it's been going back to last year since they've beaten a P5 school? Um, well, that would have been their last win. Yep, so that's, how, that's last... how that works. Yes. Well, they play non P5 teams. That's what I just, yes. That's why I asked you the P5. Uh, I bet they got one in, did they get one in November last year? The, the answer is six. Okay. They've lost six consecutive games to P5 teams. And the last team they beat was the Oklahoma Sooners, 38 to 35. <laughs> I forgot they won that game. I thought yep. I was thinking that they figured found a way to lose that game. Well, people forget Baylor uh, beat OU and blew out Tech in Lubbock. <clears throat> a little yeah. little Joey McGuire revenge game there that didn't quite materialize for Mr. McGuire. But I heard uh, some I heard some funny rumors about that that I won't share. But I think that Baylor was motivated to win that game. Oh, uh, interesting. Well, maybe you can share them to with me later, uh, and then I'll share them on my podcast the next week. Uh, Ian Boyd explicitly told me. That's right. According to Ian Boyd. Baylor also hasn't covered the spread in seven games, which Ooh. you could say, ah, it's a Vegas thing. Who cares? What a, well, the spread is a pretty good semblance of expectation, right? Yeah. So yeah. even if you lose to K-State, which Baylor lost to him last year, if you lose by seven, that's materially different than losing 31 to three, which is how Baylor lost last year. And you're not covering the spread in that instance. So it's been seven games since Baylor has effectively met expectation as a football team. And to include their last opponent, the Long Island, Long, Long Island Sharks, not the Long Island Buttafucos, as I wish they were called. But um, Island that game... there's no other football team on Long Island that can hang with those guys. 
That's probably true. Is Hofstra on Long Island? I have no idea. So I think Hofstra is on Long Island, and they would beat these guys. So <laughs> take that. They got they got Wayne Corbett's son out there, probably. Who knows? Uh, let's talk a little about Baylor, man, because oh, you're right. This is an interesting team, and they they find themselves in an interesting spot. I mean, talk about a back against the wall game, and to reinforce that, Dave Miranda was very open in saying. The only thing I heard all offseason was, if you only win one game, make sure it's Texas. So with that information in hand, and knowing what I know of incentives and how people think, is it possible Dave Aranda and Baylor are starting the season one and two because they've been working on Texas for five weeks? I mean, maybe. Probably, I mean, it's improbable, right? Well, let me scale it back. The odds that they worked Texas the entire week of Long Island is 100%. Yeah. I think they've probably snuck Texas prep in every week, for sure. In something. Um, what would their record be if they hadn't done that? I don't know. That's That's a trickier... Proposition. It it seem, does seem like they gave Utah a very different level of attention than they had given to Texas State. For sure. Um, they played way better in that game, but um, even that one, like if you if Utah had just played that freshman quarterback the whole game, they probably smoked Baylor. Right. The little the dual threat guy. Yeah, you ended up watching a lot of that one, didn't you? Yeah, I watched I watched a good portion of it. Um I actually watched more of the Long Island game last week. <laughs> and it actually was on your prompting, and I want to address this. Uh so Baylor, their depth chart that they release, their official depth chart that they release on Baylor Sports is wrong. Um and actually their starters were the starters that are listed on the current depth chart in week one. And then they transition. So they've actually done a little switch on their offensive line. Uh, a guy whose name I may struggle to pronounce. But his name Ebisele. is Alvin Ebisele. Alvin Ebisele was the backup to Campbell Barrington at left tackle. They've actually elevated him to the starting left tackle job and moved Campbell Barrington to right tackle. And then they've taken the two guys that they were alternating at right tackle, Elijah Ellis and Tate Williams, and put them on the pine. And they're not playing at all now. So now the offensive line starts a redshirt freshman at left tackle in Ebosele. And he's next to him is Gavin Byers, who's a senior. Clark Barrington is a fifth-year senior. He's also the, the other Barrington brother from BYU who transferred in in the offseason. And then they have a redshirt freshman named Caden Siraki. Uh, at right guard, six eight three twenty. Interesting dimensions for a guard. Yeah. So, and then Campbell Barrington, six six three hundred. He's a junior. So the offensive line took on a little bit of different flavor. I do think that they probably this move strengthened the line because their right tackles were absolutely horrible. Uh, South Texas. I always call them Southwest Texas. Sorry, Texas State actually got after them like in pass rush, which was surprising. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, Campbell or whoever the tackle one is probably helps young Siraki, um, 
But don't you think that Texas is going to have like Byron Murphy in particular, but really any of them? Because most of Texas's defensive tackles play with great pad level this season. Yeah. And a 6'8", 320-pound guard. Like, <sighs> yeah. Classic college football fan wisdom is look at these massive dudes on the offensive line. Isn't it so great that everyone on the offensive line is six foot five or taller, right? And insanely heavy. Like Bay- Alabama, when they got to the season, they're like, "Guess what? J.C. Latham is up to three fifty. Our left tackle is three sixty. Our left guard is three thirty. And I was like, "Ah, uh, so they're slow." <laughs> well, that that and sure we're headed enough, down that path, <laughs> so. I know, but I mean, there's some guys where that's good. Yeah. Like Cam Williams is just not going to be sub 340 probably. And he's fine. He's athletic. Yeah. But for a lot of guys, that is not the case. And the height in particular, a six foot eight guard, it's wide zone. So it's a little bit different because he can use his arms to kind of. You're still up. You're still up tall, man. And. So if you're a passing team, like pure spread passing team, let's get the ball out. Six, eight guard is not a bad thing. Like a leech team. Yeah. Because you can big brother, little, little defensive lineman, right. And, and get some, you know, create some separation with your, your wingspan trying to fire out on someone when you're that tall. That's, that's not easy, man. And, and I think that's going to be interesting. Now, to your point, outside zone, their first step is going to be lateral, right? Yeah. But you still, if you're up high, Byron Murphy or Tavondre Sweat could just throw your ass like on the ground. <laughs> like, I mean, there's just, there's some physics happening here. So anyway, I'm curious to watch that matchup tomorrow. Um, hey, maybe the guy plays with great pad level and he's super bendy and he's got great ankle and hip flexion, but typically that's not the case. And uh, Baylor's outside zone running game has not been very dynamic. And I'm curious whether that's a function of the offensive line or it's not timed up well with their backs or they're not able to pass effectively enough, like people are attacking it. Are people getting used to playing against it? Do you have any theories on it or what's your sense of it? Oof. I mean, there's so many different factors that are hurting them. I think the quality of the line is definitely one thing. Yeah. When Grimes took over at Baylor, I was like, okay, he was going from having a bunch of 23 and 24-year-olds that he had developed in that system for a long time before they had to play to getting these Baylor guys that haven't run the system that are not 23 and 24 years old, et cetera. Um, but then that first year, and really the second year too, they had all these veterans. They had like guys that were just older dudes from the previous staff, or they had transfers that were older, like the Vanderbilt kid and the Buffalo kid. Mm-hmm. And it really worked out well for them. So this was the first year that they've had to reload on the offensive line with like underclassmen. And I tend to think that that's a big factor. Um Sawyer Robinson Robertson is actually a pretty decent option guy. So they can just leave the backside end unblocked and have him read him on his own read. But he hurt his ankle against Utah. And I don't know 
what kind of shape that's in. But they are a very different team when the quarterback can pull the ball, obviously. And then they so, don't have Taekwon Fortin, you know? No, the, the freaking guy who runs a 4 2 8 40 on the outside who's six foot three, right? Um, yeah. You know, I, I did watch the Long Island game or portions of it at least. And Sawyer Robertson was moving around fine. Fine. He was he was scrambling and moving around. So Okay. We'll see. So they probably he, will have that dimension. Hey, to that point, um, he's about six four, two twenty. He like he looks good. Uh he's a good looking athlete. He was more athletic than I anticipated. When I heard uh Leach spread quarterback from Lubbock who went to Mississippi State because that was like his dream to play for Leach, and then for obvious reasons he transfers out. I was expecting sort of just you know, a statue who distributes the ball. And no, he's actually pretty, pretty athletic. I wouldn't call him a dual threat, but he can run. He's capable. Not that great of a distributor. No, that's the problem. He's missing the distributor part. And he was, he must've been a ways away from being ready to run that leech air raid. Yeah, he's, Currently completing 45% of his passes, one touchdown, three interceptions, and two in, about uh, two and a half games of play. That's not great. I'd say the only positive that I see from him, yards per attempt isn't terrible. It's over seven. And he's averaging 15.9 yards per completion. Mm. So when he does hit a receiver, they get a chunk gain, right? But he's not hitting the receivers. And... I don't know. Did you see some of the? Did you see his interception that cost them the game? Basically, at the end of the Utah game. Oh yeah, I called him no. a stare down Sawyer when he did that. Yeah, and then I mean, on top of that, there was there was no one open. He was just throwing the ball. Right. So maybe we can create some of those situations for him. Uh, and uh, one thing I, I will say is he's pretty been pretty good at sack avoidance. So the last two games, he hasn't been sacked. I mean, Long Island, I guess, doesn't have a withering pass rush. But Utah yeah. does have some pass rushers. Yes. And they were able to structure a game plan to not have that sort of negative part of, of their passing attack come to the fore. They were also closer in the lead for almost all of that game. Super competitive game. So... Here's here's a way you could just sum up this entire game for Texas. If the Bears cannot run the ball for what four yards a carry on first down, it's over. It's over, and yeah. this game is going to be just a anaconda squeezing the life out of whatever anacondas routinely prey on, because they. So much of their system depends on that. And I think they have a lot of liabilities that will show up that we're hinting at if uh, if they have to put that guy in this line and position to win the game for them in the passing game. I was going to name all the things that anacondas prey on, but you just kept talking. So I'll just <laughs> keep that information to myself. Caymans, right? Caymans, uh, peccaries, tapers. Ta tapers, that's a good uh, one. Various forms of small native tribesmen <laughs> the tapers with the tapers what they kill in the beginning of uh apocalypto right with the big trap yeah 
Yeah. Apocalypto, by the way, one of the greatest movies that doesn't get the proper respect and praise that it deserves. An amazing totally, movie. Totally agree. Well, because it happened after some stuff happened with Mel Gibson. Yeah, I, I don't care. He's amazing. That like it's an amazing film. It's it um, is an all time great action movie, basically. I agree, and an incredible reconstruction of a culture as well. So, yeah. Uh, all right, let's talk about the culture of Baylor defense, which has been the predominant culture for Dave Aranda and the Bears since he arrived there. This Baylor defense, boy, they showed pretty well against Utah. But Utah was sort of playing with a hand behind their back. I mean, frankly, playing their third-string quarterback, right? And Utah was still able to run the ball on them. Did you notice that? That Utah was? Yeah. I mean, up the middle. Like, and yeah, was- by the way, so one of the plays, one of the staple plays that Utah uses, or at least used against Baylor, was the old counter tray, where you pull the backside guard and tackle, everyone blocks down, uh, guard t- kicks out the end, tackle turns upfield, right? Um, Long Island actually incorporated that play. I, I was going to mention that. As soon as you said, popped it for like a couple of twenty-yard runs. They weren't good enough to to really punish Baylor with it, but they blocked it up <laughs> and and kind of popped it. And so that leads us to my grand thesis for Baylor's defense, which is they have a lot of schematic reps. They have a lot of history because they've, they've had the same scheme since Aranda's arrived. Um, and it was a little bit of a continuation from stuff Matt Rule was doing. So folks didn't have to relearn everything, right, from, from, the, from, the, from the get-go. Uh, but I would offer that in Aranda's defense, the classic 3-3-5, tight front, as they call it, where they have the two four eyes, you have the nose tackle. Uh, Baylor, not necessarily exclusively running that, by the way. We're, we're going to talk about that. But the key players to me in that defense for its success, or its ceiling at least, are the nose tackle and the nickel. Mm-hmm. Baylor's nose tackle is about 275 pounds. Lands is his name. They're I've heard I have heard that their 320 pound Juco might be healthy for this game. Okay. So but, the the but, the big dude from Louisiana Tech, did they just run him off or is he just did he show up out of shape? Wilkerson or whatever his name was? Uh I don't remember who that is. Okay. Well they he was a guy that they were talking about. He's gonna be the next Siaka Siaki Ika, and he has not been. No, I don't know if he's on the roster even anymore. I don't know who that is. He's, he's on the roster, but Baylor doesn't update their depth charts, so I don't know if they update their rosters. Uh, it's private school, Ian. They can do whatever they want. Uh, the Okay, so this Juco, I don't know how good he is. Uh, I think at, at minimum, he's not going to come in and wreck shop, even if right. he is big. And so yeah. I think that's a problem at the point of attack, which... Certainly Utah exploited. Jaquindon Jackson ran up the middle for like 125 yards. Yep. And then Long Island actually had a couple of nice runs doing that. Also their nickel. So their nickel's a different situation. He's a guy who's been in the program forever. He's a seventh-year player, Bryson Jackson. He's about 6'2", 210. He's an old holdover of actually the Matt Rule recruiting era where Matt Rule focused on getting amazing three-star athletes and then teaching them to play football. 
right? Yep. Jackson is very dynamic. He's very fast. He's a pretty good pass rusher and blitzer from the nickel. He can't cover. He, he, he cannot cover. And I think if he played linebacker, he would probably be considered a good coverage linebacker. But he's he playing actually, nickel. He actually was their third down edge last year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He was their pass rush specialist, right? I don't know why they put him in nickel. And I have a feeling if we game plan this correctly, he's not going to be their nickel. Because we're going to have Xavier Worthy or A.D. Mitchell making appearances in the slot. Because, look, all due respect to Jordan Whittington, my goal is not to exploit him for 12-yard gains. My goal is to go downtown on this guy, especially if we can get their safeties to have attention elsewhere. And so I think they may have to take him off the field. But if they do take him off the field, who is their number one edge run support guy in that tight front? The nickel, that star position. So if you put a small guy out there who's 180, who's their third corner, he is going to get worked. Or he's just going to miss tackles, right? He's not going to be strong enough physically to, to take some guys down. And that can be crucial at that position. So if you guys will think back to Todd Orlando's defenses at Texas, when we had a badass nickel, that, uh, in addition to other things, that defense was really tough. When the nickel was not so great or ill-prepared, or you know Josh Thompson, do you remember when he played nickel and West Virginia targeted their entire running game at him for like four quarters? I do remember that, Paul. Yes, <laughs> Ian just got a very sour look on his face. Uh, so my point is, those are two, as you'd say, leverage positions in that defense. And I don't think Baylor's up to snuff. So nope. my question is, do you think our staff sees that and wants to game plan against that specifically? Or do you think they're just going to focus on what we do and we're going we're gonna to play Texas football or whatever? No, I, th I think we're going to see a return to uh, more intentional game planning. I, I did the, I was recording the show with Rod Babers earlier today. And he, he said that he, uh, he likes to call, he thinks that there's like a dichotomy in, in Sarkeesian and there's, there's Steven and then there's Sark. <laughs> I love this already. This is great. I mean, you can already guess where this is going. That Sark is the guy that's like, got like a deep bag of play calls that are precisely calibrated to target specific weaknesses like we saw for four quarters against Alabama. Yeah. And then Steven is the guy that's just like lackadaisical. Doesn't, <laughs> doesn't have it that week. He brought this up because I brought up this idea that there's, there's still some mullet Quinn in there. Yeah. No we doubt. Only get, we only get crew cut Quinn when he's been carefully game planned and prepared for an opponent. And if we don't, there's still mullet Quinn comes back out. Yeah. I, I call him simple Quinn. <laughs> uh, Rod coming up with that tickles me to no end. The duality of man and the idea that Steve, Steve and Sark are having like a, a mirror conversation, like every bad B movie and, you know, like where they show the psychopath and he's being calm and normal, but then he's like, making the crazy face and talking to himself, you know, it's like Gollum and Lord of the Rings. Like 
you know, but we as friends with the hobbits. And then Gollum's like, we chokes them, right? Um, I think that's that's Steve and, and Sark. I, I've got to get Rod to develop that theme. That tickles me to no end. Yeah. I don't know why I brought that. I don't remember why I brought that up. But, you were uh, we were talking about the nickel and attacking specifically yeah, right. some deficient yeah. Baylor personnel. I do think that I think that the conference slate will get a uh, more intentional Texas effort than we saw against Rice or Wyoming. Maybe not the full Alabama treatment. I think the only other team that will probably get that is Oklahoma or maybe uh, Texas Tech, you know, at the end of the year. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, I, do, I do think we'll get more, you know, advanced plans of attack. I, the, the tricky thing with this game, I think, is that this is probably the last game of the season where Texas will have to guess at what the opponent is going to do. Except for like Oklahoma, probably. Hmm. Like this is the last game where it's like this: the other team might be holding something back that they haven't shown on film yet, and you're going to have to either anticipate from their history or anticipate from their personnel I do think Baylor might have something up their sleeve. Like, like Dave Aranda knows that Bryson Jackson can't run with Texas. So either Bryson Jackson is going to be put in positions where he doesn't have to. And then you got to figure that out and exploit the, the new weaknesses as they appear, or he's just not even going to play. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, very possible. I think, yeah, I was thinking, I was kind of ruminating on your thought about surprises. OU came to mind instantly, and then the other one to me that came to mind was TCU. They may have their base defense, but sort of what they do in it, Gillespie might throw us some curveballs, but... I mean, he better. <laughs> he, he better, man, because that, that front, they've had a little bit of a drop-off. And the secondary looks... They haven't addressed their, addressed their busting issue quite yet. So SMU, TCU, I think it's going to be much spicier and interesting than people think. Uh, I think it's going to be a much more competitive game. And in fact, SMU is a defense. So I, I know you haven't said, little, we haven't said those words in a long time, but they do. Not, not in a very long time. I don't even know if their Pony Express teams were necessarily known for defense. They had some good guys on D. Yeah. They... um. That Oklahoma game was more interesting than Sooner fans wanted it to be. And it could have been a lot more interesting if Preston Stone had hit a couple throws that were there. Yeah. Um, but. Yeah, the didn't... score didn't quite convey. 28-11 disguised that it was 14-11 in the fourth quarter. SMU went for it on their end uh, when OU scored. And then OU scored a touchdown at the end and sort of made it look like, oh, we had it all the, the while. Kind of what we did with Wyoming for folks who just scanned the box score the next day who didn't get Longhorn Network. They're like, oh, Texas uh, you know, handled them. Must have been 28-3 to three at halftime, and they put in the reserves, right? Not quite. Uh, all right, so Baylor's defense, They this is something I, I was kind of keen on uh, in my preview in the offseason. They really had to do a wholesale replacement of their secondary. And... The attitude out of Baylor, as you'd get out of any fan base, right, was 
yeah, we lost some starters in the portal and some guys graduated, but good riddance, right? I mean, the guys we have behind them are better, right? Right. It's 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 really only the second part that I would quibble with because the, their secondary was awful last year. Yeah. But yeah, it's not it's not better now. <laughs> it doesn't seem to be, and I'll say one thing oh, other yeah, than. Other than Bryson Jackson, who's playing the star position, uh, and they're kind of almost playing him as like an extra blitzer in the box, uh, their secondary is not very big. Yeah. And, and I'm not just like looking at heights and weights on the roster, but I'm actually lo- eyeballs. Like, you know, there were some guys that like Long Island ran through their tackles. Like, you know, <laughs> like Long Island skill position players are, you know, there's walk-ons in our running back room who would start for Long Island. Right. So I think that's interesting to me. And then if you say, oh, we got a smallish secondary, but these guys can fly. Right. They cover. Right. Not really. Right. So I I think that's interesting. And then, you know, so I guess my thought is Texas would be better off not worrying about every possible permutation of what Baylor might throw at us in different junk defenses. Texas should focus on game planning Baylor's weaknesses and then setting up some basic protections, some basic throws, and some basic runs. So on that run thing, and this is something that I've been talking about now for two weeks, and I think we'll see, but no matter the front, we need to have just two runs that we know cold. And then no matter what someone trots out against us or shifts into, we know what body goes on what body, even if it's not the perfect run for that defense, right? I I just feel like we are sampling five or six runs and we're not really great at executing any of them. And I'd, I'd prefer that we Lombardi sweep it you know, where you, you know it's going to be called, but we have 19 different ways to block it and 19 different ways to cut it back or do this or that. And we're just really proficient. Uh, I'd prefer more of that approach. So whether it's counter gaps, like we, we see something on film that Baylor is vulnerable to that, or whether it's just running inside zone or duo, or I don't care. I just want to see us like dig in on a couple of core run set concepts so that everyone kind of always knows at least who you're blocking and, and what the rules are for this run. I, I will say though, I was listening earlier today to uh, Travis Roeder and Jeff Pinlin on their Baylor podcast. And the fact that Texas has a deep bag of running plays that they, in their eyes, execute fairly well was of deep concern to them. Huh. Because they're very worried about their linebacker core and safeties fitting those runs um i do think i think this game what's the name of their podcast ian just for the listeners in case they want to get a baylor perspective do you know td podcast td yeah like touchdown or travis and i don't know dave (laughs) all right all right it's on sikkim 365 i believe Uh, okay i believe they link it from youtube or something people can probably find it all right. They're they're smart guys. They are they are Baylor fans. 
So they're going to talk about things from a Baylor perspective. But anyway, sure. um, I, I I feel like there's like a, a potential pitfall in this game where Baylor has so many weaknesses they've shown on defense this year. And it's like, I'm imagining Sark watching film and just being like a kid in the candy store. <laughs> but you don't want to try to do too much or like maybe don't go, maybe go for the safe bet. Like Texas could probably come out in 12 personnel early in this game and just run the ball on Baylor. Yeah. And I, I, if they come out and they do fancy stuff and they land all these deep shots and just bury them early, then hooray Sark, you, you know, you know better than I do. But part of me just wants, part of me wonders if it's a little smarter in a game like this where, you know, it's their super bowl. It's a night game in Waco, you know, to just sometimes just go out and blow them away in the run game and play it a little bit safer, you know, to your point, do you know who Marty Schottenheimer is? Yeah. Okay. Long time NFL coach. Very successful. If you look at his winning seasons, one loss record, would take his teams to the playoffs all the time, right? Wouldn't really advance or have great success in the postseason. Yeah. But the thing that made Marty Schottenheimer really effective, particularly in the regular season, if you had a great receiver, he got doubled. If you were playing a Marty Schottenheimer team and one of your starters goes out with an injury, the next play is run at the backup, the replacement. Like, it's not overthinking things. And it's sort of, hey, someone's showing a weakness, let's attack it. Someone has a strength, let's take that away. And it's not Bill Belichick level 5D chess. It's more just basic football. Hey, that Jerry Rice guy is really good. Let's just double him the whole game. Well, but if he goes into this look, that means this guy will be single. Yeah, I know. We're just going to double him all game. This is how I coached in micro basketball last winter. <laughs> okay, there you go. So I guess, you know, the, the thought is maybe we can reduce it to just a basic personnel level. If, if that nickel who can't cover is in, let's throw at him. If yeah. he's out and they've got a 180-pound cornerback in his stead, who's their third cornerback, and by the way, none of their cornerbacks appear to be dominant, uh, let's run. Let's run at him. You know, and, and people say, well, won't Baylor know that? Well, there's really not a lot you can do about it in the structure yeah. of your defense, right? right? I mean, like if your nose tackle isn't good, what structurally can you do to prevent someone from giving you a hard time on that? Right, not not anyway, a ton. I noticed in your preview that you translated their backup nose tackle uh, is like Tevin Maai or something. Yes, you, you translated it as productive as a coconut. Yes, and uh, I wasn't entirely sure if that was an insult. You think coconuts are highly productive? Well, if you see Castaway. What is the GDP of a coconut-only island, Ian? Tom Hanks gets an awful lot out of the coconut. 
Well, I didn't say I didn't say it can't be harvested for good use. We could harvest his organs and probably save a lot of people's lives. <laughs> I'm saying he's he's productive as a coconut. Okay. Because I I I wasn't entirely sure what to make of that. It was an interesting turn of phrase. But when I watched him, um, he's not good. He's not. He realized that he was a coconut who had fallen off a tree and was just laying there on the beach. So then you knew you understood the brilliance of my 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 simile so sure. simile the metaphor it's not a metaphor i don't know damn it i have to my son will be studying that probably next year i'll i'll have to go grab one of his fifth grade textbooks and figure that out uh yeah so they've got some problems in personnel they also have you know a few good players what's weird though ian and you and i both noticed it independently they're two sort of standby players, TJ Franklin and Gabe Hall. Gabe Hall was the guy who gave us a lot of problems last year, uh, particularly on the sack strip fumble of Ewers where he scored a touchdown. Yeah. On a, I think that was on a tight end, actually. We had a tight end on him on that play, yep. which did, yep. did not was, work out well. That was probably Franklin, right? No, that was not Franklin. It was Gabe Hall. Really? Okay. Yep. So Gabe Hall has always been the better pass rusher of the two. And he's bigger, so you think it would be Franklin. But no, it's always been Gabe Hall. But this year, Gabe Hall's not playing very well. And TJ Franklin's not playing very well. I watched a couple of plays where Long Island doubled him playside. And, you know, when you get doubled, it's not, not a great day if you're a defensive lineman. He kind of just gave up. Dude. It, it got buried. I, I, I thought that... Some of their film against Texas State, I was like, y'all need to get the Iowa State investigators in here. <laughs> these guys look like they don't care at all. They're shaving points. Yeah. That's what it looked It honestly looked like that. Now, against Utah, it looked a little different. But something I've observed, I think Gabriel Hall is a regressing Alfred Collins. Interesting. Like Very to your point, he gets up on the outside against a tight end. And it's like, this is great. I get to rush the edge. You know, I'm a gazelle. I'm going to go get the quarterback. This year, they've had him play a lot of three technique. And he's been getting a lot of double teams. And I don't think he's about it. Yeah, I think that's fair. Well, let me tell you a, a Gabe who is about it. His <laughs> name's Gabe Winslow. And he's more productive than any coconut you've ever known, Ian Boyd. You can reach him at 832-557-1095. What does Gabe Winslow do, you ask? Well, I'll tell you. He's a mortgage guy. And he's an awesome mortgage guy. He's been in the industry for over 20 years. He's got a law degree from a top 20 law school. He was an honor student at the University of Texas. National Merit Scholar, in fact. Uh, Gabe's a really sharp guy. He's really good at what he does. And you can have a relationship with your mortgage guy that's a little deeper than just getting a quote on a loan. Uh, there are levels to this, as with anything. And Gabe's operating at a different level from most of the industry in terms of his sophistication, his ability to offer you different options, and tailor something exactly fit to your financial profile. Give him a call. Find out why that he's better than any coconut who's ever lived. Gabe Winslow, 832-557-1095. All right, Ian. So we were slandering the good names of TJ Franklin and Gabe Hall, the four-eye mainstays. And you mentioned something that 
they weren't actually deploying these guys in pure four eye this year. Yeah. So the four eye, just to remind everyone, is heads up on the offensive tackle. Um, the three technique is the outside shoulder of the guard. The five technique is the outside shoulder of the offensive tackle, sort of tight, snug on their, their outside shoulder. Um, they never got, get out wider than that. But I thought that was interesting. Do you think that's to compensate in some way for nose tackle and they're trying to create more log jams inside? Also nickel, too. Yeah. Like, they've tried to play this other guy, Corey Gordon, at nickel. Because Bryson Jackson could probably play the edge. Like, you want a nickel, too, in the tight front? Yep. But the other guy, no. Um, and uh, and they've actually they've done some more four-down-ish stuff a lot of the years that Aranda has been there. Uh, out of necessity, probably, at times. So, yeah, I think that they're... I think they have Hall out of position a little bit. He doesn't like it. They don't have the nose, like you were saying, to run the tight the way they want. They, I mean, I, in their ideal world, they would have a big two-gapping nose. Yep. They don't have that guy, so you have to run more even type fronts. But don't then most it, don't it most noses there. have two gaps, Ian? Jeez. <laughs> oh, <laughs> But then they don't have like, um, so they're like, okay, we have to play more even. But then I think that their their two better linemen actually were better suited to a different scheme. Yeah. So they're they're just in a world of Gabriel Hall was considered an NFL prospect. Yeah. And then last year was kind of like, well, maybe not. He needs to put together a good final year. I mean, right now he's on track for waiting on the phone for a few days after the draft to get the call. You know who's actually been the most impressive to me, at least on a flash play basis? Is it Byron Vaughn's? Former Longhorn, former Utah State Aggie, Byron Vaughn's. And he's sort of in a job share at the jack position. And he plays between 25 to 30 snaps a game. Typically, they put him in on, on pass downs. And he's put on weight since he was at Texas. He's up in the 240s now. And uh, he looked good. He looked good coming off the edge. He's, he's athletic. He's, he's, he's not super physical necessarily, but he's very athletic. And as you'd expect, I mean, he's a former high school wide receiver and, you know, linebacker. Um, and then he's in a weird – on... Sorry? I wonder how he looks on counter. <clears throat> Probably not great. Randolph was getting – just doing a terrible job. Against counter against uh, Long Island, it looked like uh, looked like Texas against Oklahoma in the twenty twenty one Red River Shootout. Yeah, so I'm glad you brought that up. His name's Garmin Randolph, and he's six seven two fifty, redshirt senior. He's been there in a long time. He's, he's so a tall. guy he's great at football. Yeah, exactly. He's so tall. How can, how can he not just stuff this offensive tackle running at him? Um, yeah, he's struggled, and then they had a guy named Kyler Jordan. He's a redshirt freshman. They start. He's actually listed as the starter on their depth chart. When I've seen him in the game, if it's a run play, he gets worked. <laughs> he's he's about 230 yeah. and six feet tall. And sometimes he gets matched up on tackles and he gets destroyed. So I don't know what I, I don't know what Baylor's doing 
Um, uh, they, look, they've had a talent drop off, man. They really have. And I'm not, you know, we're saying all this and, you know, of course we're going to have a, you know, win by a field goal or something in Waco, but I, I just, <laughs> you watch Baylor, Baylor and you're, you're not impressed. I mean, the only game where I was like, okay, these guys are really playing hard and really getting after it was Utah. You could say that about Texas as well. But yeah. Texas won their other two games by like multiple touchdowns. Also, though, when I watch Texas, I go, that's a good team playing bad. Yeah. And there, that's different from that's a bad team playing bad. Yes. So, you know, we'll see. Um, I think Blake Shapin going down was probably more destabilizing to them than even Baylor fans would realize because quite a few of those Baylor fans were rooting for Sawyer Robertson to beat him out in the spring. Uh-huh. And the Baylor boards weren't happy when the news was announced, hey, Shapin won the starting quarterback job, you know. There's a few that were they were excited when Robertson was going to get in the game. They're like, well, we don't need Shapin. Like, oh, good, wow. get Robertson in there. I mean, just, I mean, you're going to find people like that. So there's some Baylor fans who are as dumb as some Texas fans, is what you're saying. Are you worried that recent events have derailed your retirement plans? It certainly made us reassess all aspects of ours. And that's why we're proud to offer our listeners a chance to work with David McClellan, a fiduciary financial advisor from Forum Financial. David's practice specializes in financial life coaching and retirement planning. And right now, he's offering free consultations for our listeners if you mention the podcast. As part of this consultation, David can help you understand your financial freedom number and what that means to you in assessing your future financial plans. If you want to build wealth, if you want to make optimal decisions within your financial life, David is someone you need to talk to. You can reach him at 312-933-8823. Once again, that's David McClellan at 312-933-8823. He's located in Austin, Texas, but he's got a nationwide clientele. Do yourself a favor and get some great financial advice for free and see if you might want to work with Mr. McClellan. I think you'll be happy with your phone call. Exactly. But that, that, that quieted down real fast. Obviously. Hey, I don't, I don't know if you noticed this in film, but Matt Jones, their big physical circa 1991 middle linebacker. Yeah. About 6'3", 250, jacked, huge guy. Uh, he, he doesn't move great. He is an edge. He is a natural edge. I, I'm so glad you said that. He's really good at that at Permian, Go Mojo, right? Yeah. He's been good at it at Baylor. When they line him up out there. used him at edge for the last few years, but they had to play him at inside linebacker out of just like necessity, I guess. He's yeah. never taken it to it naturally. No. This used to be a, on my blog when I when I would do more Big 12 coverage. This was like a regular thing. I was like, why don't they just play this guy at edge? It's not like their edges are even that good. It's, yep. it's unbelievable. Their best linebacker is Mike Smith. He's the guy that came in from Liberty. But he had to learn kind of a new position. Not hard transition, but he was a Mike at Liberty. And he's now playing weak side linebacker in that 3-3-5, you know, sort of stack that they run sometimes. They're having trouble with inside linebacker. Yeah. And they, nose guard. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, hit. They, well, it's so funny. I, I read this this quote from their previous defensive coordinator, and he was like, uh, you, don't, you don't create inside linebackers. They're kind of born. You don't, or like, you don't project them. If they're not playing the position in high school, then – and I was like, oh, buddy, are you new to Texas? Yeah. 
No one that you want playing inside linebacker for your Big 12 team plays that position in high school. No. And it is an essential position in this defense. And uh, I think Dave Aranda, I mean, Texas inside linebackers and Wisconsin inside linebackers are just two very, very, very different creatures. Yeah. Yeah. You almost have to just create a different recruiting territory that you use to target inside linebacker prospects. Or you got to, or you got to teach them. You got to make them out of edges, which is, I mean, what they tried to do with Matt Jones, I guess, to their credit, but it's gone terribly. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess the point is there's plenty to exploit on this Baylor. Yeah. I mean, we might be overloaded, right? Um, and I think Aranda is going to try to cover some of that up by getting them to play really hard because they're going to be fired up for this game. And they're going to run a bunch of junk defenses. But I guess my point is, rather than try to call up the perfect play every time, just target the weaknesses in their personnel that you know and just get after it. And, you know, endure the surge. No, I, I, don't, I don't mean that. But I mean... You know, just don't get too preoccupied with, well, what if Baylor does this? What if they come out with this junk defense? Just come in with some basic protection rules, inside out. Quinn, if they have an excess rusher on the edge, we're not going to try to scheme this up perfectly. It's on you. Get the ball out. Right? I I think also Sark very much respects Dave Aranda's blitz package, pass rushing acumen. And um, I kind of wonder if, uh, I mean, probably they got a little bit of OU prep in last week. Honestly, Texas did. But I wonder if they, if they. Oh, I'd say Baylor. If it, if it was anyone, you know why? Why? Big 12 home. I mean, big 12 road opener. Yeah. You I, remember I Tech. think Baylor got a little extra tension last week. Yeah. Or, or, or like, you know, the way that looks is is uh, maybe Texas worked on a bunch of uh, protections and blitz pickups. Sometimes Wyoming comes out in a 3-3-5 tight front. Right. <laughs> and the players are like, uh, I've actually never seen them do that. Uh, just trust us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's funny. Yeah. Um, I'll say this about the Texas offensive line. I'm not happy with where we are in the run game. And there's multiple reasons for that. But pass pro has cleaned up well since Rice. Uh, and so Alabama, obviously that was great. They were phenomenal against Bama as pass, pass blockers. Run blocking, not so much. Uh, that's I, a, that's, that, is a tough, that is a tough assignment. Eh, we'll see. We'll see what Ole Miss throws at them this Saturday. But um, I thought Wyoming was going to be an interesting test because – they're quicker guys. They're more active. They more resembled Rice in terms of motor and, and activity level. And we did fine. Like, Quinn was perfectly clean, I think, on 85% of his dropbacks, which is good. That's what you want. And we gave up a stupid sack because DJ Campbell missed the call, right? And he kind of panicked. But other than that, that, that was a good test to pass. And so... I don't want to say I feel good going into Waco because God knows where they'll be blitzing from. And I mean, they're going to be running double corner blitzes, right? They're going to be doing crazy stuff. 
But I felt pretty good about the improvement there. I want to see a similar improvement in run blocking. Because if you break it down at a unit level on most of our run plays, there's at least one guy screwing up. Mm. Or they're not coming off with like a lot of intention. Sort of, you know, I'm trying to occupy the defender instead of drive them, move them, at least turn their shoulders, screen them. It's more like, oh, I'm engaged, I'm engaged. Okay, the run plays over, we got three yards. It's like, hey man, we, we, can, we can accomplish more than that. Especially when we get C.J. Baxter healthy. Yeah, I'm more with you and having a, a deep playbook of runs is just, I don't, I don't know if that's really the best fit for the college game. No. But I, I will say that uh, it'll be a better fit when Texas has more upperclassmen in the offensive line. True. You know, hey, Kyle Shanahan would tell you a deep playbook of runs is not helpful in the pro game. Really? Seems I mean, like he's he got – He runs a fair amount. I mean, it's all outside zone based. I thought that, that, they, that they did like a bunch of other stuff now too, like power, gap. All sorts of different. So they'll run it if you devise a specific run defense for outside zone. Like, so they use them as counters. Okay. But a lot of what they do is just outside zone. And because they've seen and run it so much in so many different fronts, it can become almost an inside run, you know, if, if it's. Yeah. Well, they, they also have a million different. I mean, he. This is not a 49ers podcast, but... No, but like it also flex. helps to have Debo Samuel coming the other way on a jet sweep, right? Yeah, and then they'll flex. They'll like, they have Kittles, who's a great blocker, and they have a fullback, which most, most teams don't have anymore. And then they'll like flex the fullback out and then have him like throw crack blocks like a wide receiver. So, yeah. We don't, we don't have Kyle Juszczyk on our roster, unfortunately. No. Most Although teams- we could use one. When Sark wants to get medieval on people, that would be useful. I would be in favor. It's one thing I'm a little jealous of with Kansas. Do they have one of those? Yeah, they've got a fullback, and he's he's a good blocker. Is it that freaking guy that caught like two touchdown passes against Texas? A couple yes, of years the ago? former walk-on. Is he? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, Kansas, yeah, Kansas has better and more varied personnel than just about anybody in the Big 12, other than... Texas and actually they've got more options than sort of Texas. They just don't have the highest end. Like their I, receivers I, aren't as dynamic as ours, right? I am more worried for Texas against them than I am against Oklahoma. Really? Yeah. Huh. It's the week before, for one thing. Yeah. You you know that Oklahoma is gonna get a focus Texas. Under Sark. I, I don't think, I think Sark knows what's up. And you're going to get, you're going to get crew cut Quinn in that game. You're going to get Sark in that game. <laughs> we're going to get, not, no, we're not going to get Steven and simple Quinn? No. Okay. So, uh, like, say this about Quinn Ewers. As bad as he can look in some simple things at times, he shows up in the big games when he's prepared. Was TCU a big game? When he's well prepared. <laughs> there you go. 
<laughs> there you go. Good caveat. Good well, job. He's, you know, he's older now. Um, I I just don't that Oklahoma game. I just feel like Texas has all these. It's kind of like this Baylor game. They have matchup advantages all over the field. But Ian, Oklahoma's scoring so many points. You remember when they pulled that crap in 2008 where they lost to Texas and they're like, okay, we're just going to score 60 every game now. Well, because it was still a popularity fest, right? The BCS and and they had the formula. They they jumped Texas in the formula and it was like, oh, unstoppable offense. You know, the biggest part of the jump though. No. It was the human voting. It was Art Bryles ranking us like seventh or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That had the biggest effect. Back to Baylor. So back to Baylor. That's why I'm transitioning us back because we like to tangent. Um, do you have a score prediction on this game or, or at least a feel of like where's this game going to be played or are we going to start off and just dominate or is it going to be a bit of a grind and then it opens up late? The Baylor guys mentioned that their offense is good at limiting possessions, which is easier now with the new rules as well. I feel like... You know what? We can play a role in that, though. Yes. We're not obligated to let them have an eight-play, 31-yard drive, right? Well, they, those guys are also assuming that Baylor would figure things out pretty well on offense uh, and be able to run the ball and run clock. They didn't think Baylor would win to, to spoil their ending. But they thought that Baylor could could hang around and make it a game. Cover. Yeah, cover. Basically exactly that. Um, I think the spread's 14 and a half or something like that. I don't actually know if that's true because, as we mentioned, I think there's a chance that Texas could stuff their early down run games with their defensive defensive line. Um I kind of see Texas, I think that they're going to be effective attacking Baylor early. And then they won't need to try to pull away late like they have right. in the last few years. So maybe something like uh, 31 to 14. How much margin? That that covers the spread, doesn't it? Yeah. It does cover the spread. You guys heard that. Ian is, in, is encouraging all of you <laughs> to engage in offshore gambling. If you're a Texas resident, because it's not legal in Texas. It, hmm. Michigan lets you gamble, right? I don't know. I don't, I don't gamble. You're a huge gambler. <laughs> I, what about what about prostitution, Ian? <laughs> you know, in Detroit, I don't know what the laws actually are, but I, I'm pretty sure that they are not very well enforced in certain areas. I think a lot of things go but, in Detroit. Yeah, that you probably there's a lot. I think there's a lot of areas of Detroit where cops are sort of reluctant to go unless they're in force. So. Uh, all right. Yeah, I kind of feel similarly about the game. In fact, I think. Yeah, you know, the danger of any two digit spread in a game is that you can pretty much dominate the game and still give up the backdoor cover. Right. And particularly because Sark and Pete have shown that, hey, we put in our third teamers on defense at the end of the game because we're trying to get guys reps and the other team can go drive and score. And so that can ruin a lot. So to me, as much as we just said there's amazing matchups all over this Baylor defense for Texas to possibly exploit, 
I think the safer bet for Texas is our defense against the Baylor offense. Yeah, I, it's such a sure thing, right? It feels like it. I mean, you know, outside zone can be a little tricky. You don't know how guys are going to react to it if they haven't been exposed. But I also, isn't it pretty clear that we have solutions if they're running outside zone effectively at first? Yeah. I mean, you could see them running it effectively and then Texas's defensive line, like adjusting to the angles of the play. Yeah. Their linebackers adjusting to the angles and just shutting it down. We saw that with Wyoming. We yeah, were over-penetrating. Right? Yeah. And then we, we realized, hey, stop getting upfield. Stop getting suckered. If, if, you're, if you beat your guy, stay flat until you find the ball. And outside zone has its own weird rhythm and pace. But one thing that will be important, uh, Jalen Catalan. If you're running a longer developing outside zone, mm-hmm. that support from the second and third level, yeah. coming up with some intent, and some speed like a missile that can be a big part of this. Cause if you can hit that runner while he's still running laterally and st- before he's got his shoulder squared, uh, he's going to go down hard. There's no Kyle use to go pick him off. No, no Kyle use uh, no George Kittles. As you said, they have two George Kittle, but, um, you made him a plural. You didn't realize that. He look he he plays like a plural sometimes. He does play like a, he does play like a plural, like there's two of them. Unfortunately, they both get injured by about midseason. Yeah. Um, I think that's a that's going to be interesting. Like safety support from depth, that's a that's a factor in outside zone. It's also a big factor in their little tight end single read play action game off of outside zone. You need your guys to be Johnny on the spot and see what's developing and attack it. You can't sit and wait for the tight end to catch it because then it's too late. He's going to turn up the field. He's going to fall forward. And, you know, now it's new set of downs on third and seven. And, you you know, you just played into their hands. So Texas one, needs to get them off the field. One more wrinkle in that is that Baylor loves to play with two tight ends. Yep. And Texas's uh, personnel and two tight ends has generally been take Jaday Barron off the field, put in Jet Bush. Yes, that's right. And I, Bush has been good. So maybe they'll just do that and see if they can discourage it by being aggressive. But uh, So Randy and I were musing about this. Mo- what? Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, they may have Mo Blackwell back this week as well. Yeah. So Randy and I were musing about this. Jade oh, Barron's the most dynamic guy on our defense. He might and be the best player on the team. He's probably the best player on the team, to be honest. Yeah. So, like, Let's not roll him off the field when someone goes double tight or 13 personnel. Let's roll him back to safety or, or like, let's do something other than take him off the field. And it's not an insult to Jet Bush. As you said, he's been playing well. He's very physical and he's getting good use out of that cast on his, on his arm as well. Right. The club. But, yeah, the club. But uh, I'd like to keep Jade Barron on the field as much as possible. Yeah, I wonder. I think maybe it's like, well, this is just we're gonna spell him. This these will be the snaps where we we give him a rest. Does, does he strike you as a guy that needs to be spelled? Not really. He's about as hyper in the fourth quarter as he is on the first play. This this would be the week where if they've if they can play him at safety, that this is the week where you just put him put him back at safety and take 
probably Jaron Thompson off the field. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. So any other things we should alert our dear listeners to with regards to Baylor? Baylor's back. <laughs> how, how are they back, Ian? It's been... <laughs> you just like the alliteration? You just like saying that? They had that? to roll, because, well, you know, like Texas being back. For Baylor, being back means something. It means basically the opposite. They had to roll out the tarp to cover un, unfilled seats against Utah. Oh, I remember that tarp. That used to get good use back in the day. <laughs> When it wasn't filled with Texas fans. And I'll tell you what, from a Baylor administrative standpoint, so Texas fans with regards to Baylor are either like, screw them, won't miss them, or they're sort of indifferent. Like, uh, I don't know. I don't have any feelings about playing Baylor, whatever. Or, well, or they hate them. Or they hate them, right? Because they've been but, good at the Bryles and whatever. But Baylor, boy, they need Texas on that schedule. Season tickets, individual ticket sellouts right not just to Baylor people but Texas people right I've, I've been in that stadium multiple times not the new one not the toilet toilet seat not the bidet on the Brazos but the other one and I've been to some games where there's 25,000 Texas fans in that stadium and you just take it over but you know what we all had to buy tickets and you also that game was always guaranteed to be on television I mean this is going to be an ABC game Ian this is this is all going away. I mean, Oklahoma State Baylor, Cincinnati Baylor, it's not going to do this. And I think the Baylor admins and and I don't think the Baylor fans have fully reckoned with what life will be like absent Texas and OU kind of creating these premier games and motivating their fan base and creating a little institutional jihad of yeah, we went 5 and 7, but we beat Texas's ass or you know whatever or we went six and six, but remember we beat OU in overtime. You know, it's just going away. And I think they're going to see the mind share of the state of Texas. I mean, if, if, if you, when we weren't in the SEC, do you remember how sick you'd get out of SEC, like promo and endless just promotion? Yeah. It's going to intensify in the state of Texas. It's Texas and Texas A&M, man. And, and te- the state of Texas was the crown jewel for the SEC. This is what they've been angling for all these years. And Baylor and all these other teams, the, you know, what's the, what's the, the Christian evangelical series left behind? Yeah. Isn't that, you know, Matt, it's like the, Matt, it's the rapture, right? Yeah. And it's about all the people that are left behind. In, yeah. is, is it purgatory or do they say that? Or well, It's not purgatory. It's- is that a Catholic thing? Yeah. Okay. It's, it's earth after. So the rapture is the idea that like Jesus comes and sweeps away all the believers before all the terrible things start happening in the book of revelations. Gotcha. So there's a few people left, left behind. Right. And then all these terrible apocalyptic things happen. And some of them quickly become Christians so that you have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a quick way to convert. <laughs> yeah. Um, and others, I, I read some of those as a kid, and they are truly terrible. They're not really well written. Um, they're not. As no. realist, even as a teenager, I read this one and I was like, This is bad. Any art or culture 
strictly written for a very specific audience, right? That's very narrow. Typically, is is not good, and that uh, that applies to all all except fields. for except for our own content. Except for us, yeah. You and me specifically, but I, I'm going to include Rod in that club based on this the Stephen Sark, Gollum, uh, Smeagol dichotomy. I love that. Uh, we hate Squin. <laughs> <laughs> he won't execute the passes. And then Sark's like, no, we love Quinn. He's just got to learn. It takes time. <laughs> we hate him. <laughs> oh, it's great. We're going to cut out all this, Ian. Don't worry about it. Uh, hey, man. So Baylor, back to my point. I think they're going to feel left behind. Not quite the apocalypse, but more just the absence of being noticed. You and... know, I know a number of Baylor grads, a very, very large number, actually, because uh, the church network I'm in, sure. the mothership is actually in Waco. Um, and uh, the ones that are younger and online and on Twitter that have been are that like that think that football started in like 2010. Yeah. They were bought in on the like, well, the big 12 doesn't need Texas and Oklahoma. Like look at the ratings for Oklahoma state and Kansas state or whatever last year. Like we're great. F I'm good riddance. The ones that I know that are like millennials that remember the two thousands. Some of them are like, whatever. I'm a Colorado fan now. This <laughs> <laughs> and i don't the younger ones that like aren't used to baylor as we know them from back in the day yeah i don't they've they've refused to believe like the idea that like hey you know baylor probably has a lot of casual fans even amongst their alumni that have been and could once again be texas longhorn fans wow and if you tell them that, like we both know, we both know a Baylor grad that was basically a de facto Texas fan. True. Um, great guy. Yeah, great guy, Britt. Um, that, but like for the younger fans, it's like, it's just like unspeakable. Like yeah. no, no self-respecting Baylor fan would ever root for Texas. Those guys are the absolute worst. And that was easy to believe when your own team was competitive. Yes. And it was like they are the enemy. But when you don't share the field and you don't have the same stakes, and like a if if you are if you want to have college football on Saturdays and you're like a casual fan, I think that a lot of those people are going to gravitate towards the Longhorns and just give up on Baylor. Wow, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Um, I'll tell you this: Brett Yormark is so happy that Colorado is coming to the big 12 because the energy and the attention that Dion and, and they bring, uh, by the way, they're about to embark on a little bit of a, a reality check tour over the next few weeks that I'll be monitoring and betting on uh, and fading Colorado. <laughs> but that said, Ian, millions of people stayed up to watch Colorado, Colorado state till two 30 in the morning. Paul, more people watched that game allegedly than watch Texas and Alabama. I believe it. It's crazy. Yeah. He's, he's, I, whatever you think about Dion, and I, I have mixed feelings in some regards, he's amazing for college football. 
he's he's creating college football fans. Yeah, there's a lot of and if like I, I I've been listening like Bill Simmons like watches Colorado now. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I, I don't. So I don't think a lot of Texans even know if they've never worked much on the East Coast or known a lot of people on the East Coast. Like, to p- people on the East Coast or actually both coasts. I'd say more the East Coast, but the idea that you would care or pull for your college football team is kind of weird. Like you grow up a giants fan, you grow up an Eagles fan. There's you went to temple or something like you don't even care about your college experience, you know, experience or any of that. Now, some of them have basketball. Yes. But some of them have told me like, man, I wish I could have gone to a big like Southern state school or big Western state school with like football and all this stuff. But you know, I'm a Giants fan. I'm an Eagles fan. I only watch the NFL. I don't care about college. I care about college insofar as the draft, right? Right. Yeah. But if if you convert even a portion of those people, it's massively enervating for college football. Because as much as we care about it, and we are obsessed with college football, we see 100,000 at DKR, college football doesn't hold a candle to the NFL. Right. I mean, so I'll give you guys a... They get those dense metro populations. Yes. Which have teams. Yeah. And they, they got teams and it's passed down through your family and like, this is a Jets house. You know, <laughs> like, you know, it's just, they're not, Junior went to SUNY, like Stony Brook. He doesn't have a college affiliation. He doesn't care. Right. So yeah, it's, it's super interesting. And uh, yeah, I mean, Dion is, yeah. he's going to energize a lot and bring in a lot of fans. Um, as long as it lasts, and then he'll, he'll be coaching in the SEC. Right. <laughs> Probably somewhere. <laughs> Probably at Florida, just to piss off all the Florida State people. Even but Alabama. Man, I don't think Alabama would hire him, but uh, I think Lane Kiffin's angling for that job. Oh, you think so? Yeah. Auburn? Hell yeah. Well, they already got Hugh Freeze. They already have. The, the magnetism of Hugh Freeze? I mean, I, I think that's probably going to work out. Uh, well, as well as Auburn drops bags combined with Dion, whoo, that'd be powerful, boy. Yeah. I don't know if Dion wants to live out there. I'm trying to think of where the best. LSU, 100%. Oh, he would. <laughs> he would murder. I would fear him at LSU that'd big be, time. Well, fine. Um, would, it, would Aggies hire Dion? No. I can't imagine. No. Also, would Dion go to AM? No, he probably wouldn't. He'd think There's it's no weird. way. He'd think There's it's no way. Yeah. Because he's he's got enough Texas familiarity, right? Yeah, he would he would he would do Texas, I think. Yeah, I don't know if Texas would do Dion. Uh it'd be hilarious. Feels like it that feels like something Texas would do. Really? Yeah. I don't think so. If he's like proven. Maybe he's at Colorado for a couple of years. Well, but what proven meaning what? I mean, well, I'll say this. I mean, all right. So we're going to get into this. He's hired a good staff. I He seems to be pretty good. Well, I guess my point is I was 93% certain Dion was just going to hire a bunch of his boys. You know what I mean? And then his boys were going to come in. It's kind of like Trent Dilfer at UAB. You know, the typical former jock who has who sort of didn't do his homework and showed up and and now gets to 
get elevated based on his fame or, or status or whatever. Trent Dilfer, a much more minor example, but Trent Dilfer like hired a bunch of buddies and like people that he coached with in high school, right? Dion came in and was like, hey, who runs a really awesome offense? Yeah. The head coach at Kent, uh, at Kent State? Cool. Let's, let's, let's hire him. Uh, let's go get, I mean, position coaches. He went and got like real dudes and he doesn't know all these guys. Uh, I thought he was just going to get like former players he played with and like his boys. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I'm, frankly, a lot of coaches do that. Not just former athletes, right? Former players. But Dion didn't do any of that. He kind of just established like, hey, I'm the face of the program. I'm going to do a bunch of crazy stuff and get attention. And I'm going to recruit. And I'm going to sell this brand. Y'all coach these guys up. And I got to say on the sideline, his demeanor's good. They were getting their ass kicked by Colorado State. He wasn't like running around yelling at people or panicking or anything. Yeah. He had composure at, at minimum. I don't know how much he was doing on the headset. I'm still trying to figure out who the best fit for him. It's got to be LSU. I mean, LSU, he'd be incredible. He'd be unbelievable. Miami, maybe. Oh, Miami he, for sure. They're kind of Florida sad. State, although he's upset them. Um He's certainly the prodigal son. Yeah, they passed him over, so he's uh he's uh not yeah, he's not happy with him either. Some some of those southern schools are a little stodgy. Uh, it's hard to imagine them like when it comes to football, Ian, they're maniacs. Like that goes out the door. If you think you can if they can deliver like winning football. And those administrators, by the way, the stodgy guys, they know the power of football in the SEC. I mean, Alabama, Ole Miss, their student bodies are full of good students from Texas that have raised their average SAT score like 100 points in the last decade. Because yeah, they're, 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 guy they're guys. Alabama recently. Yeah, they're a bunch of guys that couldn't get into UT. And they didn't want to go because of the top 8% nonsense. And, so, and they didn't want to go be Aggies or go to Tech. So like, I'm going to go to a fun SEC school. I'm going to go to Ole Miss. I'm going to go to Alabama. I'm going to go to LSU, whatever. And, you know, that comes in part because of the student experience there, right? Sports, the sense of community and a fun college four years and all that. Um, those SEC administrators understand that, like, deeply. Even Vanderbilt. I, you say that, but then I was like, Tennessee, and then I was imagining Dion living in Tennessee. Tennessee has hired maniacs. I just Tennessee is those fans are psychos, dude. I, I feel like Dion is gonna want to be in a place. Where... Oh, you're saying like it's it's like uh to like Appalachia or yeah, like in two like rural white. I just feel like I'm, Dion is gonna want to yeah, be in a place. So. That's... What's Boulder, dude? But 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 Colorado is like hip and there's like, there's not Confederate monuments that people are fighting over whether they should be there or not. You know? I guess, but honestly, if you kind of know a little bit about Dion, he doesn't, he thinks all that stuff's nonsense too. But like LSU is like. Oh, he'd kill it there. That's Mardi cool. Gras, 
that school very much belongs in part to the black community there it feels like yeah yeah um, Whereas like Tennessee I mean there's not even actually that many there's not actually that many black people in Tennessee Memphis to other places yeah and Memphis is mo almost more an Ole Miss place than it is a uh Knoxville yeah I mean Memphis is his own thing yeah it's, it's it's very distinct yeah and I don't I don't think I mean Mississippi State is just like why would he go there right right um, yeah uh, yeah, no, it's super interesting. Actually, if you think about it more broadly, not just Colorado, I mean, if you would say, where would Deion Sanders coach? Colorado wouldn't be in your top 25. It's just the first place that said, we'll let you be our coach, right? Yep. And took this experiment, I mean, this giant leap because they were so hapless. What was their, you know, what was their option? Um, so what other schools outside of the SEC I Where could like you see him? Be, I feel like he'd want to be in the South, though. For like 100%. Ohio State, Ohio State would be the the one. Nah. Is he a Michigan man? No. <laughs> Talk about stodgy. Yeah. yeah. He's not going to be at Iowa. He doesn't want to be at Iowa. Um, yeah, you know, maybe in the ACC, you'd have like Maryland or something. But again, I don't know if that's a, a better like a job than Colorado. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's stepped out of this. Well, you got, you got some access to some athletes, though, actually. But Clemson. Yeah, that would be quite a switch from Dabo. I mean, it would make sense, though. <laughs> oh, my God. What about, what about South Carolina? Uh, I just feel like you could do better. That's like Mississippi State. In some regards, I think I think they're a step up, but I get you. I get I get where you're coming from. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It's fun to play the Dion game. Georgia, Georgia, yeah, I think Georgia would be amazing. But they sort of lack the desperation. I mean, they have they have the strongest program in football right now. So right, not, that's not well, in the market. I mean, even post that. Um, once you've gotten a few titles and been the big dog for a while, you, you kind of feel like we don't need to do something crazy. Let's just stick to our, you know, our knitting. Dion in Atlanta though. No, he'd kill it. He'd just murder it. Dion in Atlanta or Dion in Dallas. But yeah. Dallas doesn't have, I mean, I don't SMU. I don't know. Yeah. That's not <laughs> right. They, they pay for him. We know that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't. I don't think that would be. Florida would be amazing. Yes, just to irritate. I mean, the Florida State fans would commit seppuku. That yeah. would be amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. We're we've played the Dion game sufficiently here, but it is fun, and and this is kind of the point. Whatever you think about him, he's he's raising interest and attention in college football, and that's a good thing. So ultimately, Colorado will be a very good thing for the Big 12. Like, really good. But we'll see how long that lasts. Yeah, if he's there. Right. Dion hasn't uh, had a Colorado winter yet. So <laughs> we'll see how he likes those. And then also, frankly, if the proof of concept works there, there's going to be big jobs that want Dion Sanders. Guaranteed. Don't you agree? Or do you think I'm, I'm off? No, for sure they will. Yeah. I mean, the ratings alone, like. Ratings, interest, recruits.
alumni giving energy. Yeah. I mean, whatever the version of the Texas One Fund is at Colorado, I promise you he's quadrupled it. Yeah, from what it was. Yeah, it, before it was probably 40 people. Probably, probably <laughs> hasn't quadrupled the Texas One Fund. You know what? The Texas One Fund probably needs to get up off its ass because we're getting lapped by several SEC schools. It's kind of embarrassing. Really? Yeah. You would never guess from recruiting results. Well, we've got big guys who step up in certain circumstances. And a lot of the SEC schools are actually crowdsourcing and relying on a bunch of upper middle class to lower tier. It's been their typical that's one of the things that sets the SEC apart. It's Yeah, and that's why Aggies are good at this stuff because they line up and salute when you tell them to sign up. You know, you're not a good Aggie if you don't do it. So Texas needs to pull their head out of their ass on that because the, the big alums should be handling facilities, buildings, names, stuff with names on it because they want the legacy. All the fans that are white collar successful or blue collar successful need to be ponying up because that's the stuff that actually goes to the product on the field, the recruiting because really rich dudes, they don't like paying off players at Texas. There's no legacy there, right? When you got the stadium or a weight room or a building named after you, there's some legacy. So yeah, unless this, unless the funds were named after specific guys, like, I mean, like you think back to like uh, Rome and like Crassus, like having multiple chariot teams, right? Oh, like, yeah, 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 yeah. We could have the Michael Dell fund for defensive backs, right? But, then, but that, but then Crassus would get the credit when his teams would dominate the, the in the Coliseum or whatever. Sure. So uh, that's fair. Maybe, yeah, maybe that's something we should uh, look at. Yeah. Hey, really rich guy listening to this podcast, uh, reach out to me and I'll be your I'll be your hype man and front man and coordinate all this. <laughs> I'll only ask for a small percentage. Half half a percentage off the top. It's nothing. It's only a few hundred thousand dollars. Uh, all right. Yeah, we're still recording. I don't know why we're doing this. All right, Ian, you gotta go to bed. I gotta get out of here. This has been your Boyd Baylor breakdown. Thanks to y'all for joining and then hearing a lot of random musing. Uh, hopefully you're still enjoying it. If not, hey, you could have turned it off. Uh, for Ian Boyd, I'm Paul Wadlington saying, hook em. Interest rates are up and the market is tumultuous. And now more than ever, you need the best darn possible mortgage broker working on your behalf. That's Gabe Winslow. And you can reach him at 832-557-1095. Or you can go to mortgagesbygabe.com. What makes Gabe so unique? Well, he's incredibly bright. He's a UT grad. He's got a law degree. He's been in the mortgage industry for over 20 years, and he is a true mortgage broker. What does that mean? It means he can shop for the best deal at over 80 different lenders and find you the terms that best suit you. Most mortgage guys you talk to won't reveal that they have exactly one size fits all for you and exactly one conduit to get your loan. If you are in these hyper-competitive markets, and you're in these markets that have frankly gotten a, less, a lot less friendly to the consumer, you need the best possible person working on your behalf. That's Gabe Winslow. He has our full endorsement. You can reach him at 832-557-1095.